On this episode of AvTalk, we see how far air traffic fell in March and what we're likely to see in April. We also take a look at some of the more interesting flights that airlines have operated in the past few weeks. And Yorgos Hatsimanolis from Marine Traffic joins us to discuss what their data can tell us about how COVID-19 is affecting the global economy. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz and hello Ian, how are you? Hello Jason, I'm I'm hanging in there. I have mustered the late afternoon energy to record this podcast. I am caffeinated, I am carbonated, and and I'm here to go. I'm carbonated, but I'm going with the depressant now rather than a stimulant. So kind of the opposite direction there. Well, I, I've as of this moment, I am switching from stimulants to to depressants. So ah, welcome uh, to the club. We're yes, so we're uh, we're headed in the right direction, I think. How are you managing with your quarantining and and such? I haven't been to my office in I guess three, four, three or four weeks now. I won't be back until sometime in June, apparently. I'm thankful I moved into a slightly larger but still small apartment earlier this year because I don't know how I would have managed in my last apartment, but. I'm managing as best as anyone who really likes flying around to weird places all the time can be if they're confined to their basically a four city block radius around the place they live. I mean, you could make a game out of it and turn your apartment into some sort of ultra plush first class cabin. Sure. I mean, the closest I get to an airplane right now is I look out my window at the LaGuardia arrivals. They they go right by my window pretty much on, on most approaches. But these days, it could be like 30, 45, yeah. 60 minutes before between arrivals as opposed to just a couple of weeks ago when it was about every 45 to 60 seconds. I mean, d- does that even make it better? Or work. I don't know if, if that's a comforting thing or, or just kind of rubbing it in. I'm not sure. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Like it, it's depressing, of course, necessary, but super depressing. Also, yeah. I, I just miss seeing airplanes. There is that. There is yeah. certainly that. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at, at this website that I track planes on. You may have used it before, but like the next arrival to LaGuardia right now is. is 21 minutes away. The one behind that is 42, and there's only six out there right now. So it's not much and, going and that on. Number which, is set to set to shrink. Yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah. again, it's it's a good thing in in ways. Terrible and depressing, but uh, necessary. It's a necessary thing. I hesitate to say it's good, but it's necessary. It's certainly a thing. It's certainly a thing. Well, we with the the three at home and my wife now at home all the time. We bought a bouncy castle for the house. For, Can I come for over in, and oh, inside? Right. I mean, yeah. Oh. I mean, one day, one day. I was really excited, and then I looked at the weight limit and and got a little upset. Oh well, I not fit. Well, I have to stop drinking this beer in order to jump in your bouncy <laughs> castle. You have, to, you have to drink far less beer and probably cut yourself in half. Oh, well, that's but, not uh, good. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely designed for kids, but they're certainly enjoying it, and and that is bringing me joy. But uh, it turns out you can stick a bouncy house inside your living room. And so, so if anyone's wondering where we're at, that's where we're at. That is where we are at. I do not have room for a bouncy castle, 
but good to know for the future. So this is our first episode in April after two back-to-back episodes when things were extremely uncertain, changing day by day. So we did an episode uh, two weeks in a row, and then we took a week off to, to get back on a regular schedule. And and we're playing it by ear mostly, depending on what's happening in the world and how quickly things are changing. But thing, the rate of change seems to have slowed down, at least as far as aviation is concerned. Yeah, well, when you hit rock bottom, there's only so much capacity I mean, left I, to shed. We're not we're not there yet, but we're Some getting close. Are. I think. Yeah, this is true. This is true. The U.S. is most certainly not at rock bottom, Boa. We'll get there. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I thought it would be worth it to to take a quick look at what ended up happening in March, as far as the numbers we were talking about. You know, things down and and things staying down. So total flights. In March, ended down twenty one point six percent, but that's it's kind of a misleading statistic, I, I think. And we did a blog post earlier or last week explaining this a little bit because if you look at the first week of March, nothing really was out of the ordinary. Traffic was up four and a half percent globally because things really hadn't gone too far outside of China and some immediate adjoining countries uh, as far as traffic was concerned. Then you get to the last week in March and traffic is down 55%. So a huge change in really just a week. I mean, the 11th and 12th of March are really, I think, the defining moments for aviation in this. Yeah. And it's not getting better or coming back anytime soon from everything we've seen so far. No, I mean, we're, we're looking at, I think at this point, we're going to see the US market further decline in the number of flights operated. But I feel like we're closing in on, I don't even want to call it normal because it's not normal at all, but a new stasis, uh, a new kind of baseline where we're seeing something around 30,000 commercial flights a day, 50 to 60,000 total flights. Looking at the numbers, that I mean, that could change next week. And we could be sitting here going, wow, Ian was really wrong. But I guess it remains to be seen depending on how how carriers adapt their new and their new schedules once again. Because it feels like airlines are cutting, you know, a little bit or a lot day by day. Yeah. At least in the US, we're seeing most airlines have cut their schedule to the absolute bare bones here in the US through pretty much the end of May. Past June, things get a little more optimistic and then it ramps back up kind of to what was once normal July and beyond, though American has made some pretty dramatic cuts to its international route network. It really seems like domestically, they haven't touched anything, have they? No, I, I mean the domestic. That still seems rather optimistic to me. Extremely optimistic. They the American. We're just using American here as an example because they published the most comprehensive and and I guess the most to date information. They chopped a lot of their international capacity. A lot of routes that were going to launch. A lot of the summer seasonal routes will not be launching again for 2020. But domestically, everything is kind of like as you were. Continue on. Yeah, and and I yeah I, I would 
perhaps term that irrationally optimistic. But yeah, I mean, the international stuff is crazy. We I tweeted something about you know what was happening over the North Atlantic with the hundreds fewer flights, and uh, Ross Feinstein, the uh, one of the communications people at American, said, "Yeah, there are two transatlantic flights." American Airlines is currently operating two transatlantic flights in total. Yeah, and that would be Heathrow to Dallas, Heathrow to Miami for some reason, and their only other international flight right now, or at least intercontinental, I guess, would be uh, yeah, DFW yeah. to Tokyo and Narita a couple days a week. And I mean, just the sheer scale of the drawdown, especially of international travel, is still surreal to me. Yeah, there is no scale for this. We're, we are we have tipped the scale. We are off the scale. Where we are further, deeper, more dangerously into very uncharted territory. Yeah. So close to home for you, I, I think a big service reduction is what American, United, and Delta are doing in New York. And this kind of mirrors what other airlines are doing and. In their large cities around the world, where you're seeing a, a huge reduction in service, and to me that that seems like kind of the beginning for the U.S. You know, it, as as goes New York, kind of so goes the rest of the country. Yeah, well, American has cut back now dramatic. I think, but starting today, actually has cut back absolutely dramatically from New York operations. LaGuardia has just two daily flights to both Charlotte and DFW, uh, one daily flight to Boston, Chicago, Miami, and Dulles, uh, not Dulles, I'm sorry, uh, Reagan down in DC. JFK, which is their East Coast International Gateway, has one daily flight to Dallas, Charlotte, and Miami. That's it. Three flights a day. And Newark, they have one daily flight to DFW and Charlotte. So that's an even smaller operation than JFK now. All flights operate between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. They're using crews that are not based in New York. So these are op- being operated basically as any uh, turn and burn city for um, American, whether it's Lansing, Michigan, or, or, or anywhere else in the country. Uh, JFK is effectively not a hub right now. Um, but this is in response to the absolutely abysmal load factors that have been on flights. Last week, I guess it was towards the beginning of last week, I got a look at some of the load factors on American flights, and they were still operating multiple flights a day. There were uh, four to Charlotte, three to Detroit, a whole slew to Miami. A good handful of these flights were operating with one passenger, two passengers, three passengers. and It just became wholly unsustainable to operate these flights. Literally, one passenger on an A320 is crazy. So they are cutting back, not because of the virus itself, but to meet demand, which just isn't there. Yeah, I mean, the effects go far beyond just the the kind of medical, you know, and and safe guidelines and things like that. It's just no one with no one, you know, able to travel. There's no demand, and things are drying up. But my question, I guess, is why did it take so long for airlines to do this? I guess airlines are just complex machines. You can't just ramp down an operation overnight. I, I mean, you can. This happens I, with storms, but I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. All right. I've reached the point in life, especially in the past couple of weeks, where I don't have a good answer to that is, in fact, a good answer. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> that, it's that, strange. Yeah. So let's talk about some airlines that are either storing large portions of their fleets and in the process saying goodbye to portions of their fleets as well. And we'll start off with today's news, which was the announcement by Lufthansa about a large number of changes that the Lufthansa group is making, not the least of which is that they're saying an early goodbye to their A380s, some of their a 3 sorry, some of their A380s, not all of them, some of their A380s, some of their 747-400s, and some of their A340-600s. They are cutting let's see, six A380s that were scheduled to exit the fleet in 2022 anyway, but they're being removed now. They're cutting seven A340-600s, and they're cutting five 747-400s. Right. As among well as, other things. Yeah, three A340-300s that were operated by CityLine and 11 A320s, some of which I'm, I'm sure are, are quite elderly at this point. Another 10 A320s from Eurowings, and Swiss has said it will reduce its fleet by delaying deliveries and possible early retirements, but there's no real plan there yet. What will Swiss possibly delay delivery of? Do they have more A220s coming in? I don't know. I should take a look at that, huh? Because their 777 order book was filled, wasn't it? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they've taken all 12. I think they only have A321s and A320neos on delivery, on oh, order. Okay. So there you go. Quite possibly those. And, and one more A220. Aha. I think so, that one will make the cut. Yeah, just, just bring it in. It, it'll be fine. Let's see. Oh, the other thing, uh, as far as Lufthansa Group, because German Wings is going away. That's still around. It's still around, but not for long. And it's going away as part of folding all the operations into Eurowings, which is going to have reduced operations as even so. So German wings will those flight operations will just be discontinued. German wing or yeah, German wings will be folded into Eurowings, and then the long haul business for Eurowings will also be reduced. Um, so a lot of a lot of reduction in the Lufthansa Group, and, and I'm sure there's probably more to come. British Airways parked their a, a huge chunk of their fleet over the past three weeks. You've got short-haul fleets scattered around the UK. You have their long-haul fleet in Spain and France now. The 747s and the A380s have now been parked, or most of them have now been parked. So it will be interesting to see when, if, and how those come back. Yeah, we'll see. But another point on Lufthansa, none of the fleet types that are retiring are a total retirement. So there will still be A380s, 747 400s, and A340 600s, and 300s in Lufthansa's fleet once and I guess if things return to normal. You, yes, you still have a chance to fly all of those airplane types. Um, so not a, not a total loss. What about an airline or a couple airlines who are now done with a particular type where that is not the case? Gone is the A310 from oh, Air Transit. This is, this is sad. I, I think Air Transit is the, was the last Western airline operating the A310 I, I saw. Yes. Pretty, that, that pretty is much what the they only said. airline operating a passenger A310 out of maybe Iran. 
Out, yeah, outside. Yeah, I think that's correct. And if that's incorrect and you know the right answer, podcast at fr24.com, please. Oh, I was going to say Ian at fr24.com. That works too. Yeah, that works too. But yeah, air transit, <laughs> this is this one stings because I've been trying to get on that one for about a year now when it was convenient, but it looks like convenience kind of killed my chance there. Out never the window. And never will happen. No. And KLM moved forward the retirement of their 747 passenger fleet. Uh, they still operate a few of the cargo, pure cargo variety, but they are done carrying passengers on their 747. So I never got to fly and, and I tried. It wasn't for a lack of trying. I never got to fly KLM's MD-11s and I never got Ooh. to fly KLM's 747s. Well, this was no ordinary 747. This was a special. This was the uh, 747 Combi, the 400 Combi, um, which if you're not familiar, basically the forward, I guess two thirds, maybe half of the aircraft is just a regular passenger configuration and the rear third uh, on the main deck is cargo, which is pretty cool. That I believe that was the only instance of, of uh, Combi out there still in service. I don't know of any other. I can't think of one. Not the the 747 anyway. No, and that that was a very cool airplane. I had the the pleasure of flying both an F100 and or was it F70 and a KLM combi in the same trip and that was that was a lot of fun knocked out two rare and now extinct birds in the same trip. Those are gone. So if you didn't have the chance, you never will. Yeah, th- this strange time I think is going to see a lot of forced retirement. Yeah. And it's sad that some of, as I call them, the weirdo aircraft are, are the victims here. Um, the Combi and the 310 are definitely in the weirdo category as they just, they're, they're gone now. And there is nothing else out there quite like those two. There are There's very little in the way of differentiation when it comes to aircraft these days. It's pretty much just your Boeing wide bodies and your Airbus narrow bodies. And they're, they're all pretty damn similar. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and we will come back and be joined by uh, Yorgos Hatsimianolis, who is at uh, Marine Traffic. And so we have a, a little bit of a switch up on this episode where we're going to learn a little bit about what the ships are up to and see how that data compares to the data that we've been seeing and hopefully learn a little bit about the world. Can so we, we ask will... him if float planes are tracked by marine traffic? Are they boats or planes? We could ask him. Yeah, we'll probably forget. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by Yorgos Hatsimanolis, who is the media strategist at Marine Traffic. And obviously, we don't track marine traffic. We track air traffic. But we thought it would be fascinating to talk with someone who's looking at the rest of the transportation industry or, or a, a vast majority of it. Yorgos, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So I, I was hoping that you could give us a little insight into what you've been seeing over the past month or so in relation to the volumes of traffic and some of the insights that you've been examining. So the main things that we've been looking at is how shipping activity could paint a clearer picture in relation to trade and how this 
COVID-19 is going to impact on the global economy. So what we've been doing is looking at arrivals and departures at major ports around the world. And the reality is that the effect on shipping is not really visible yet because it takes a ship so long, unlike, you know, a flight, which is never really more than 20 hours, which is a, which is a, you know, really long one. A ship could take up to six weeks to reach its destination. So the impact on shipping is not really visible yet. We have seen some slowdown, but not really this, the same impact that aviation has been witnessing. So I would say the main things that stood out for us is uh, that we saw a slowdown in China in mid to late February, which is really when the you know the the virus really took uh, a hold of that country, and then since then we've seen the numbers start to go up again around Asia. It probably hit a little bit later. So in in Singapore and Korea. We kind of saw numbers go down uh, towards the end of February uh, to early March, and then it's started to pick up slightly, but we're now seeing a, a second slowdown, which is not as sharp as the initial one, but definitely the numbers are starting to go down again in terms of arrivals and departures at Busan in Korea and at uh, Singapore. Then in Europe, so in Rotterdam, for example, we're really only starting to see a small drop in numbers now. So probably the last three days has been the only time that we've seen a consistent drop in numbers day by day. New York, on the other hand, we've seen a, a much sharper drop in activity from about 150 arrivals per day in all the early March to approximately half of that over the last three days. So the last three days has kind of been 75 on Sunday and then 90 yesterday and then so far only 60 today, although it's still kind of the middle of the day. So we're kind of seeing that the, the pattern was China was hit first, slow down, but now showing a recovery. The rest of Asia a little bit behind China and Europe is only now starting to see a slight drop, which I imagine as demand drops we'll see, you know, we'll see that take effect. So you mentioned the lag of shipping, you know, it can take up to six weeks for, for a ship to to make it from port to port. So is there any data or kind of in your thinking, if China does start to recover, as you're seeing a little bit, by the time those ships leave a port in China for, for Europe or, or for North America, the slowdown will be more so affecting the arrival port. Is there any concern that there's going to be some sort of buildup there with, with you know, kind of too many ships coming in? Well, I think as, as demand drops for products from China, I think the problem will be that we will see that the ships won't be leaving China. So the issue we will then have is what, what, what do they do with all their products? And the other issue that we have is that there are a lot of containers currently around the world that are basically just sitting at port empty and they're, you know, they're taking up a lot of space. So we might see some vessels coming and going just to free up storage around the world. But I think the major problem will be that there's, you know, with such low demand, with, you know, I don't, I don't see Europe and North, demand in Europe and North America picking up anytime soon. So I, I don't think that shipping activity will pick up either. I think there will be a slowdown even in China. 
And what have you been seeing in the way of you know oil tankers and things like that? With the price of oil slumped so much, there, there's got to be, and kind of that being based on an increase in supply, how is that how is that affecting where where ships are and and how all that oil the oil needs to go somewhere so you know with fewer flights up in the air and uh, obviously a drastic reduction in car and uh, traffic around the world as well there's an excess of fuel obviously the price of of oil is much lower as well I think the the issue there is when we haven't really seen much change yet. I, I uh, imagine we will very soon. The issue there is: are they going to start using these large tankers purely for storage, which we have seen uh, on a much smaller scale in the past? Because there's not enough storage facilities in the world to accommodate all the excess oil. So I think what we're going to start seeing something that Iran has been very good at in previous years is tankers used as storage and just kind of sitting offshore, you know, waiting for when all this recovers. And you mentioned empty empty containers just sitting sitting in port. Do those ships just kind of move off, you know, and then anchor somewhere nearby and, and then move back on when, when they get a slot? How, how does that work as far as timing things? You know, while demand has dropped, uh, I would imagine that these uh, large vessels will be sitting in anchorage somewhere, you know, waiting for business, basically, waiting for a call to start operating again. Other operators are actually slowing down. So we have seen in our data that the median speed for ultra-large container vessels is about one and a half to two knots slower than it was in the same period last year. And, and this has obviously got to do with demand. So with no great demand for these vessels, they're slowing down their journeys. Another interesting thing that we've seen just in the last few days is um, MSC, which is one of the world's largest container ship companies, has had a few of its vessels amp up their speed and is sending them from Asia to Europe and vice versa the long way. So they're avoiding the Suez Canal and its expensive toll and opting instead to go around the Cape, so all the way around Africa. And the speed for this different journey will need to be increased by about two knots despite the added five days of schedule. So industry experts are saying that that's about 200,000 US dollars a day higher fuel bill, fuel bill overall, but it's still less than the Suez Canal tolls, which could be approximately 350,000 to half a million US dollars per transit. Wow. I, I guess I, I've never thought about in our podcast, we've talked about landing fees and overflight fees and permits like that, and, and you know it stands to reason that there's similar things for for transiting canals. But I, I never considered that it would be that much per transit. Wow, that's that's some fascinating stuff. So the increased speed is that purely out of if we go slower, we'll run out of fuel by the time we come around, or, or is that you know to make up the time for the arriving in port on schedule? I think the increased speed is purely to make up the time because obviously they're going uh, the longer way around, so they're just trying to make up the time. What's interesting though, another little bit of fascinating thing, which uh, I'd, admittedly I'm not really an expert on it, but what is very interesting is that there's been a strong push 
for shipping like aviation to kind of cut its carbon footprint or to reduce it as much as possible. And obviously taking the longer way around at a higher speed is not helping that situation. So there already are people that are within the industry that are trying to stop this and are, and are calling on the regulatory bodies to kind of stamp this out and not make this uh, the norm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously burning that much more fuel would be the opposite of uh, reducing a carbon footprint. What can you tell us about the the cruise industry at this point? I mean, certainly a lot of the the cruise ships are are docking where they can, and, and we've seen uh, repatriation flights for uh, crew members. Wamos Air and Ethiopian Airways have operated a handful of flights each from from ports in New Orleans and Miami to bring the crew members home. What have you been seeing generally? So a lot of the questions we've been getting at marine traffic, predominantly from US media and from some cruise industry analysts, are around where have the cruise ships been, especially the ones that uh, had reported cases of COVID-19 amongst its passengers. So this kind of made us look closer at where these vessels have been over the last three months. And we created these uh, very visual uh, heat maps, which obviously I can't show during a podcast. But what was interesting in, in, in highlighting pattern changes in cruise ship travel in the first quarter of 2020 is that we're uh, seeing a considerable drop in traffic uh, around Australia and Asia when compared to the same period last year. And then we're kind of seeing this hot spot around South Florida and on the Atlantic side of South America, so around Brazil, we're seeing this hotspot where cruise ships are, are kind of traveling around there, which I'm not really sure what the reason is, but we're seeing a lot of cruise ships in those regions in comparison to last year, but we're seeing drop traffic everywhere else. So aside from uh, some ships, instead of going through the Suez Canal, they, they're going around the Cape. In air traffic, we've seen a lot of air corridors being greatly reduced, routes closed and consolidated um, due to limited controllers and simply there not being as much air traffic. So uh, flights might have a more direct routing. Are you seeing anything similar to that in the shipping and the marine industry where there may be less traffic so things are more efficient or? they're taking different routes than normal? It's hard to take a different route other than the one that I mentioned where they're avoiding the Suez Canal and going all the way around. It's hard to take a different route because these are obviously the best possible way to go and the most uh, fuel efficient way to go generally. What we are seeing is we're seeing a lot of routes being cancelled. So we're seeing a lot of, a lot of trips being cancelled because there just simply isn't the demand. And I imagine that this will pick up over time. And we are seeing small sort of alterations to particular routes because a container ship that leaves China and its final destination is, let's say, North Europe, will make a lot of stops along the way. It's not similar to aviation where it might just make one stop or two. It, it will probably make, you know, up to six or even more stops along the way because it could stop in India and then uh, in the Middle East or around the Gulf countries and then through into Europe, it could, you know, could stop potentially in Piraeus, here in Athens, in Italy, in Spain, in France, in the, in the Netherlands, and then in Germany. So we are seeing some of those stops drop off some of the journeys. Yorgos Hatsimenolis. 
Thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating to talk about something that we normally don't look at. And if things really start to develop, we'll hope to have you back in a future episode. Thanks. That would be great. Yeah, looking forward to speaking about this again and uh, learning more about aviation and all the cool stuff that Flight Raiders are looking at at the moment. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back. I, I thought that was a nice change of pace, and I learned a lot. I, I, it's kind of crazy to me that they're just going faster and going around the long way to avoid the toll road. Yeah. If, if there's one constant there, I mean, aircraft do burn more money when they burn more fuel to fly faster, so that that's a constant. It is interesting that some aircraft would go the long way around a country to avoid overflight rules, just like some ships are taking the long way to avoid a literal toll. Yeah. So kind of going around things, we've got because of the response and reaction to to dealing with, with COVID-19, there are a number of airlines operating really weird flights that they would never, ever consider operating in normal times. And I thought we would go through just a, a quick list of, of some interesting ones and some that are ongoing and, and some that were kind of one-off to get through that. We talked... I think in the last episode about the handful of Delta flights that operated to Salt Lake City from various places in Asia to bring Mormon missionaries home, there was some more of that. Egypt Air operated a flight that started in Delhi, went back to Cairo, collected a bunch of passengers, and then flew nonstop from Cairo to Salt Lake City. So there's one for you. A positioning flight that happened over the weekend that really confused me was an Ethiopian Airlines 777 flying from Chicago to New Orleans. Yeah, that's an odd one. That was a positioning flight. It had come Addis Ababa, Frankfurt, Chicago, stopped in Chicago, went down to New Orleans to collect Carnival cruise ship crew members to bring them back to bring them home to Manila via Addis Ababa. So that's that, got to be the strangest example. That that one was just, you know, absolutely confounding uh, until I understood what was happening. A couple other ones, SAS operated its two longest flights ever within a week. The first was uh, Copenhagen to Lima for a uh, repatriation effort for Scandinavian travelers who had been stuck there. And then today, currently, right now, they're flying back, operating their longest flight ever from Lima to Stockholm, uh, doing much the same thing, more more Scandinavian travelers who, who had been stuck there. Um, yeah, so, my, yeah. I think my favorite so far have been the, the Wizz Air flights that were just way stretching the range of, the, of that uh, European carrier. One of their 321 Neos, not the LR, just a regular Neo, went from Budapest to Iceland to JFK to LAX and did it all again in reverse to repatriate citizens. That's a long way to go in a narrow-body, ultra-low-cost carrier aircraft. I mean, I know the urge to get home is strong, but damn, that's- That that was something. 
Yeah, that that's bad. That that's um a really uncomfortable way to go home, but if if you got to go, you got to go. Yeah, if there's if there if there's one flight home. I mean, cuz the other one was what uh Budapest, Reykjavik, Toronto, Chicago, Miami, Chicago, Toronto, Reykjavik, Budapest. I mean, that it was if you got on the plane in Miami, good luck. Yeah. That that's a long way. And remember, these are aircraft that are meant or are fitted out in the interior to be flown 45-minute hops into Europe, not um, hopping around North America, then over the Atlantic with a couple stops along the way. Right. But people are happy to get home. But that is one of the most extreme examples. A lot of these other, they're long-haul airlines flying long-haul aircraft just to weird places. This is a ultra-low-cost, short-haul airline flying ultra-long range, which is just fascinating. And then Wiz has turned around and is now operating an air bridge between Hungary and China with they're doing Budapest, Nur Sultan in Kazakhstan, then down to various cities in China to collect medical supplies and then doing the reverse, all with A321neos. So there were seven in the air at the same time, I think yesterday, on Monday, the 6th of April. So that's continuing. Aer Lingus is operating a number of cargo flights, I think through the rest of the month, if not into May, that are nonstop flights between Dublin and various points in China to, to bring back medical supplies. And then there's the other repatriation flights that that are, you know, long haul flights, but operated to to places you wouldn't normally see. So the first ever Lufthansa visit to New Zealand took place this week when they had two 747s on the ground in Christchurch and an A380 in Auckland. So lots going on there. New Zealand also, Air New Zealand also operated a flight back to repatriate German citizens. What's interesting to me is that, that Air New Zealand went New Zealand, Canada, Germany, where the Lufthansa flights flew Frankfurt, Bangkok, Air, uh, New Zealand. Um, so you know, getting there the you know opposite ways, but but getting there just the same. And what was him the oh Luf, uh, Air Australian Airlines did a ton of repatriation flights over the past couple of weeks, bringing people back from South America, Africa, Asia, uh, and, and North America back to uh, to Vienna. So apparently lots of Austrians abroad and, and lots of Austrians yeah, uh, stuck abroad. And we we have definitely seen the longest flights that some of these airlines will ever operate in probably their history to come. Yeah. I I can't imagine SAS or Austrian operating longer flights than these. So um history in the books it will probably never be overwritten. And then there's some kind of uh you know, not necessarily repatriation flights, but some interesting things going on. Air Greenland normally operates a single A330. That aircraft is currently in heavy maintenance. So they are operating a Dash 8 between Greenland and Copenhagen with a stop in with a stop in Iceland to carry uh, essential medical supplies and test kits. So so COVID-19 test kits, they're testing people in Greenland, they're flying them to Copenhagen to to run the tests. And then, you know, flying medical supplies and, and things back. So we live in strange times. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no two ways. <laughs> that, we, we, just, is, we live in strange times. 
that is up there as one of the strangest and probably also least comfortable ones. But if you're all you're bringing is test kits, you're probably not complaining. Yeah, about yeah. There, there's a board. few. I think there's a few passengers on board. You know, special circumstances and, and things like that, and, and everybody has to go through approvals and all that. So there, there's a lot going on. But then the other thing is, we talked about this. I think an episode or two ago, where it hadn't quite reached that point, but now it has. Where some airlines are taking seats out to carry cargo on the main deck of passenger aircraft. Right. So we, before the need for freight had really ballooned, we had said, oh, you're probably not yet going to see aircraft completely converted to freighters. They were only using belly space to run freight-only flights with passenger aircraft. But now, well, a whole host of airlines are operating completely as freight, even on the passenger deck, either by simply putting boxes that are very securely placed on top of the seats you're seeing anyone from Virgin Atlantic to uh, Lufthansa and others doing that. But a lot, uh, not a lot, but a couple of airlines have actually completely or almost completely taken out the seats on that deck to convert it to a temporary freighter. I believe China Eastern has done two A330s and Aegean has actually converted in one of its A320s to almost completely freight. I think they they leave a couple uh, token economy seats on board in case there are, are any um, airline employee passengers on board. Yeah, so I I would expect that at some point we'll see a few more of these, but it'll be interesting to see who starts operating with with a lot of seat cargo. American, Delta, United, Aer Lingus, Lufthansa, I believe, is operating a few cargo only. Emirates is using and Qatar are using their passenger 777-300ERs because of the the massive belly capacity that those offer as cargo only, scheduled cargo. So there's there's a lot going on, but it'll be interesting to see if if anybody moves forward with taking the seats out to to store cargo. Yeah, I really want to see an A380 converted to a freighter with all its seats removed and filled up with cargo. That will be fascinating. It's probably not ever going to happen, but that would be It would be something. It would definitely be something. Let's close up with with two two final things. One is a Canadian airline is now making food deliveries. Yeah, and it doesn't even involve an airplane. So tell me more about that. Okay. Well, Air North up in the Yukon territories, I guess, in Canada up in Whitehorse has a, a catering facility, but they don't have any fights to actually cater. So they are still making uh, meals with the, I guess, the supplies and ingredients they had on on hand and are actively offering pickup and delivery of these meals in the greater Whitehorse region, uh, whatever that might be. So if you want, you can go to the Air North website and order up one of their traditional onboard meals, which apparently are pretty good, and go pick up your lasagna and go home and reheat it. Uh, so if you really want some airplane food, head up to Whitehorse. All right, then. Different. Any way you can right now. Any way you can. So there's been lots of conjecture about cargo aircraft and employing large cargo aircraft to carry a lot of stuff right now, whether that's masks or or ventilators or medicine or anything like that. And the largest cargo aircraft will soon be back to work. The Antonov AN-225 was under 
I don't even know if heavy maintenance is the right word. They took the entire thing apart and put it back together. It's since done a couple of test flights in the last few weeks. And starting this weekend, actually, it will depart Kiev for a variety of cities because it's big and needs to make a lot of fuel stops to China and back. If you're in Warsaw, look for that on the 14th. And later in the month, it'll be passing through Athens on its way to Paris, but the airport outside of Paris that's not quite Paris. And I forget what the name of that airport is. Do we have any idea what it's hauling? Uh, I have no idea, but it's picking things up in China and bringing them to Poland and France. So one assumes it will be massive quantities of medical equipment given the current climate, but it could be anything. Yeah, Hopefully it's we're, interesting. Yeah, we're, we're looking to get more, more information about what will be on the aircraft, and I'm sure it'll be of great interest when it flies as it always is. Yeah, usually that AN-225 is reserved for not so much heavy equipment, but hugely outsized equipment that physically cannot fit on any aircraft. So it will be interesting to see if, if it is just carrying something gigantic, run of the mill, something for industry, or actually a gigantic load of medical supplies. Yeah, I, I have no idea at this point, but I hope to have a better idea by the end of the week. We'll see how things go, and we will certainly keep everyone updated. That's, I think, where we stand at the moment. Let me off. I want to get off here. <laughs> There's a lot going on. People have been asking, you know, like, what's it like? And I keep describing things as drinking from a fire hose. No, no, no. The fire hose broke off. We're, we're drinking straight from <laughs> the fire straight hydrant. Straight from the right hydrant. Now. Oh, okay. There it is. Well, there, yeah. I, I have nothing to add. And so I will just say that this has been episode 82 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, and I have been joined, as always, by Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.